I'm going to begin by actually reading you a passage from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 6 and 8. Hear this. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Uh, Part of the reason I'm leading with this is because this is a passage that is giving us a glimpse of a worship service taking place in the heavenly throne room of God. And regardless of how you understand the book of Revelation, regardless of what you think the four living creatures are and what they mean, one of the things I want us to lead off with is the importance and the centrality of worship to all of life. Um, Worship of God has always been since time existed. That's part of what Isaiah gets a glimpse of when he looks into the heavenly throne room in Isaiah chapter 6, and he sees the train of, of God's robe filling the the temple and he hears the seraphim crying out holy 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 um he is god himself is surrounded by worship every minute every hour of every day in heaven and so worship is important it is not just a part of heaven though it is a part of created order as well you could find that by reading uh, psalm chapter 19 we see all around us that the world itself was constructed in such a way to compulsively lead us to worship. Uh, We were created for exactly that. We were made to give glory to the creator. We, We worship God because he created us to worship him. It's the reason why we exist. And this is one of the really important things I wanna say as we're starting is that sometimes we feel fulfilled worshiping and sometimes we don't. Uh, Sometimes we are happy when we worship and not always. Um, Sometimes doing it is fulfilling. Uh, Doing it fulfills the purpose of our existence after all. But the aim of worship is not self-fulfillment. Worship is the answer to the question, what's the meaning of life? What were we born to do? To worship. Why do we live where we live? live? Well, the book of Acts tells us so that we could worship. Um, Why did God give us a family? So that we could worship. Um, Why did God create a church? To worship. Um, virtually every question that we can possibly ask about ourselves or about our existence, the answer is worship, actually. Um, We worship because he commands us to, because he made us to worship. And the reality is that if if we don't worship God, we worship something. We are obsessive, compulsive worshipers. Um, even when we refuse to worship God, we're worshiping other things, we're worshiping other people, we're worshiping ourselves, we are worshiping something because it is our reaction in life. It is our compulsive reaction as human beings made in the image of God. This Sunday school class is all about the question of worship. The most important thing that you will ever do and the thing that we know for sure that we're going to be doing for all eternity as a Christian. Um, what an incredibly deep and important topic. What is worship? Um, You know what? The most boring way to to start off any sort of talk on something is to start by giving a dictionary definition of something. Very dangerous to do that, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. 
not a dictionary definition, but what's a basic idea of what worship is? It means to give honor. It means to give reverence. It means to give service. Um, in the Old Testament, the word literally for worship literally means to bend oneself over at the waist. Um, you know, it's a, it's a picture of submission. It's a picture of surrender to God. Um, as we go through this series, I'm going to be bringing out books on the subject of worship. I'm going to be recommending some to you. Others, I'm going to tell you, you wouldn't want to own this, but you should look at it anyway. Um, in this case, there's a giant book that I have called Reformation Worship. And it's about as, you know, whatever's the biggest you can make your hand, that's about how big you have to make your hand to carry it. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll bring it out and show it to you all at some point. But the, the beginning of the book, Jonathan Gibson writes an introduction and he, he gives a good definition of worship. And I'm going to read you what he says. He says, worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, angelic and human, to God the creator, redeemer, and consummator for who he is as one eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for what he has done in creation and redemption. And for what he will do in the coming consummation, to whom be all praise and glory, now and forever, world without end. Amen. Now, you have to memorize that between now and next week. And then I'll quiz you and see if you've got it memorized. Um, <laughs> probably not going to memorize that. But it's a long definition. But also, if you give too simplistic of a definition of worship, it's, it's insufficient. How does that differ from corporate worship? How does that differ from what we do in here on on Sundays? How is corporate worship different from the worship that God calls each person to give him? You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that everything we do, we should do to the glory of God. He's telling us that in all of our life is supposed to be worship. And yet there's this other special kind of worship that we talk about as a church, that we practice as a church, and it's called corporate worship. How is that different from the more general thing that God called us to do as his, create, as his creation. Um, Rob Rayburn, now we have a Rob Rayburn in our presbytery. This is not that Rob Rayburn. Rob Rayburn's father wrote a wonderful book called Oh Come Let Us Worship. And it might be the most helpful book I have on worship. I don't know, I've got like 10 books on worship, so I'll have to think about it. But his book is extremely helpful. And here's what he says corporate worship is. This is what we do on Sundays. What we say and what we do when we stand together before God, realizing in high degree who he is and who we are and what he has done for us. So what we say and what we do when we stand together before God, realizing in high degree who he is and what he has done for us. Um, And then he goes on to say this. And this is the important difference, I think, that we want to see between what we're all called to do each week in our lives and corporate worship. He says, while it is true that an individual can worship God sincerely and meaningfully in strict solitude, and many of us do enjoy sweet communion with him when we are alone, we can never know the full richness of worship unless we unite in common worship with other members of the body of Christ. So he's talking there about what we do when we get together with other people, not the sort of worship that we give to God in our everyday lives as we're walking around, as we're trying to honor him with the way we live and what we eat and what we drink, what we do. Uh, Instead, he's talking about those moments when we get together. Now, um, 
I'm not going to go on to make the argument that corporate worship is important. You have read your Bibles. You know that Hebrews 10.25 is there. You know that it's telling us that we shouldn't forsake the gathering of God's people. Um, I won't go on to make that point. Um, Jonathan Cruz, though, has a uh, wonderful book called What Happens When We Worship. Again, I'm going to be pulling these books out and showing them to you and, and encouraging you with them. But he does talk about what happens when we worship. And, and he's sort of writing to people who are a little bored with worship. Uh, people who come into worship and they say, you know, I'm a little bored. Um, I, I wish it was more interesting. I wish there was something to draw my attention more. And one of the things he says is, if you, Christian, realized the gravity of what is taking place when the church gathers to corporately worship, there is just no way you would think of it as something that's boring. Because one of the things that he talks about is the fact that uh, when we worship, something happens to us and ha- something happens between us. You know, there's, there's a reason why we're all together when we have corporate worship. Um, there is a relational exchange is what he calls it. There's a relational exchange. We're giving something to God. We're giving something to each other. And then we're receiving something from God. And we're receiving something from each other. The worship is directed to God. But there is something that we get from doing worship as well. Um, maybe you've been part of a worship service that was completely passive. You're, you don't do anything. You really can't sing. Um, the music is too hard to sing along to. Um, the band is so loud that your voices can't be heard. Um, you have, um, the music is tricky. It's tricky music. It's the sort of thing that you would know the song if you've been listening to Caleb, but if you haven't been, then you can't sing it, right? Um, or you've been to a church service where there's nothing interactive. There's nothing to recite back and forth. There's no corporate prayers. Um, there's no, no engagement at all from the congregation. And, and maybe you have been in that situation. And one of the things about that is that it, it inhibits the ability of people to actually do their part to worship God when they are intended to be passive and sit and hear and receive. And that's sort of the plan, right? I'm going to sit and I'm going to be quiet and everything is going to happen around me. And I'm going to kind of passively be worshiping by, by being an observer. But I'll be a good observer. You know, I'll listen really carefully. I'll pay attention to the lyrics. Um, this is what happened in the Middle Ages, And this is one of the things you're going to start seeing in in this uh, through the Sunday school series is that there are connections, even with some of the things we see today and some of the things that have happened throughout church history. In the Middle Ages, worship became totally passive. So people would sit and they would listen to uh, stuff being read in a language they didn't speak. They would watch a priest uh, do the worship, basically go through the motions of the worship. Um, they would watch the priest take the Lord's Supper. He wouldn't give them the cup. They wouldn't get the bread. Uh, he would, they would just watch this man and just think, wow, if only I could be receiving the Lord Jesus too, right? You, you watch someone else do it. Um, they would watch the choir sing. Oh, the choir would sing so beautifully. I wonder what they're singing. You know, um, they're not singing. They're not participating. There's nothing for people to do except to show up and observe, And so what happened was the idea that worship was for an audience of one, that's God, became lost by the idea that worship actually had an audience and it was the congregation. Um, And that is what happened in the Middle Ages. I I might suggest that there are some churches where that still takes place even today. Um, I want to argue 
that we should see worship as something that's not meant to be entertainment or performance for us. It's not actually meant to be uh, uh, performed for anybody except for the Lord, ultimately. Um, Vast majority of this Sunday school class is going to be focused on specifically corporate worship. We're going to talk about the church, what we're called to do, and what the church has done throughout history. Um, How have we worshiped together in the past? Um, My hope for this class as we study this is not only going to be... um, is not only going to be um, that our experiences on Sunday mornings will be enriched. I do believe our Sunday morning experiences are going to be enriched. Um, but also, we're going to have a greater gratitude for the times that we have together as a church body. Um, I, I can tell you this because the same material I'm going to be sharing with you is what I've been feeding on for the last few months. Um, it's part of the reason I decided not to wait uh, to start the Sunday School series. Um, I also hope that some of the things that we do here and maybe some of the things we don't do here at Evergreen will make more sense to you. Um, If there are things that you're used to or that you see other churches do and you're like, hey, why don't we have Ash Wednesday at Evergreen? Like, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of those things. Um, But also, um, I would love for each of us to be able to articulate to ourselves, to our children, and to visitors to our church what it is that we do and why it is that we do it. I don't want us to just simply be receivers. I want us to be active thinkers. I want us to be considering what all of this means, why we're doing it, and to be able to articulate a deeper understanding of those things. Um, I do think that happens without the lens of Scripture, or I don't think that happens without the lens of Scripture and without church history. And so in that sense, this is, a, this is going to be a class on worship, but it's also going to be a trip, trip through church history. Um, on the subject of worship. So imagine basically we are, we're on the lot at Universal. And what are we doing? We are on the path that's taking us through all of these different locations. And all of them, though, are going to be on this one path that is, is dedicated to worship. So we're going we're gonna to look at the early church and we're going to look at how they worshiped. We're going to look at how it is. How, what was it like when they got together? Did they stand? Did they sit? How did they pray? Did they pray with their eyes open? Guess what? They did. Um, did, they, did they pray standing? Yes, they stood for the whole service. Um, up until, you know, until the Puritan era, people stood for worship. Um, it was just sometime during the uh, late Middle Ages, people were like, what if we had chairs? That sounds awesome. <laughs> There's, these are just things that... Um, I think that when you imagine early church worship, you either imagine something so foreign that we would not recognize it, or you imagine it to be something so familiar that you do not realize just how different those times were. And so in in all of these cases, what I've done is I've been looking and reading lots of books. and, And sometimes when a book will say they did this during worship, I would go find another book and I would make sure that that guy wasn't just making things up. Because sometimes things are just so wild and interesting that you, you're just like, is that just one guy kind of skewing things? And so I've, I've tried my best to do my homework on, on some of this. Something else we're going to look at is the uh, worship in the Old Testament. We're going to look at what they worshiped like. What were the services like? What was it like to go before the Lord? Um, what was it like to worship in the synagogue? We don't know very much about the synagogue. I bet there's not very much. I could ask you guys what it was like to worship in a synagogue, and there is not very much you could tell me. 
Um, and so what I want to do is my hope is to fill in those gaps so that we, we do have a better picture of what they were worshiping like. Um, my goal here is to mostly be appreciative. I'm going to go and we're going to look at some stuff that we don't do and that we wouldn't do. And I might have some comments, especially if you ask about why we don't do some of these things or uh, what our reasoning might be. Um, but mainly, I don't want to study this subject so that we can be critical of everybody in church history that came before us. Uh, my interest is not in going, they did this, bad idea. They did this, bad idea. Most of the things that you see in church history are not things of right and wrong. They are differences in culture. They are different ways of expressing different things. The essentials are the things that we have to focus on. And we're going to talk about the language for that. We're going to talk about the language of um, circumstances, forms, and elements in worship. I want to give you a vocabulary to think about worship, about some of the things that we do or don't do in worship. Um, to help you sort of work through those things for yourself. In that sense, we're going to be adopting tools so that we can talk about it. Um, But at the end of the day, it's always scripture that we have to go back to and that should direct our worship. So when there are things in in church history that are just blatantly opposed to scripture, and there are, we're going to talk about it. And we'll also talk about how did we get from the New Testament to now they're doing prayers to Mary in corporate worship. Um, we're going to talk about how do we get from Jesus saying, this is my body, to the Middle Ages where they're teaching transubstantiation, that this actually becomes the physical body of, of Jesus. How do we get there? Um, I'm going to do my best to do it in a way that's explicable, but I think for the most part, these may be questions you've asked yourselves before. And so I think what hopefully we're going to be doing is answering questions that you haven't asked and maybe raising questions, things you never thought of as well. Um, why am I interrupting the New Testament survey to do this? A few reasons. One is, I don't know how long the series is going to go. I have it broken out into 10 distinct lessons, but I am sure each lesson is going to be more than a week. We're just going to work through it, and I'm going to answer questions, and I'm going to try not to blast through it quickly. And that way, when we come around to our summer break, my hope is that we've completed the series. Um, But I don't want to rush it. I think you're going to be really gripped by the subject. Some of them will be more interesting to you than others, but all of them are absolutely fascinating one way or another and a great blessing. So um, here's the roadmap. I'm going to give you the roadmap. Lesson one, what is worship? Now, that's supposed to be today, but we got such a late start. I don't know who it was, but some guy preached like for an hour. (laughs) What kind of indulgent person just does whatever he wants and preaches for an hour? So... That Because of that guy, I don't think we're going to get very far into this, this lesson. We're just introducing the, the class, basically. Um, and so what we'll do in this lesson, though, is we're going to look at the story of Scripture read through the lens of worship. I actually want you to see that the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a book about worship, and it's a book about either true worship or false worship. It's, either, it's, either, it's a book about how God calls us to serve him and honor him and obey him and to worship him in doing that. And then all the ways that we invent so that we can get away with not without doing that. Um, that the whole book is just Israel trying not to worship God and God grabbing them and dragging them back and saying, you're supposed to worship me. It's why I made you. And then Israel going, but what if we invented some stuff? And him going, don't stop it. Come back over here. I'm going to rescue you again. I'm going to bring you back. You're going to worship again. And he's restoring Israel's worship over and over again. And I want you to see that. And I want you to see 
the difference between the worship that Adam and Eve had in, in, in the Garden of Eden. And you may not have even thought of Adam and Eve having worship in the Garden of Eden. And I want to show you, look at the liturgy of, of the Garden of Eden. And then I want us to appreciate that. And then that way, when we come to the Old Testament and we see the mess that is involved in getting to God and worshiping him, we're going to see that Jesus satisfies that need so that now we can come to him in simplicity with glad hearts. It's such a huge difference between the Old and the New Testament in that sense. Um, The second lesson is going to be about the synagogue. We're going to look at the ways corporate worship was done in the synagogue. Um, um, The early church borrowed heavily from the synagogue because it's what they knew. It's, it's how they knew what it was like to get together and worship. And so we're going to look, look at what the liturgy in the synagogue was like. Guess what? Our order of worship is pretty much a synagogue order of worship. Um, what we do is basically what they did in the synagogue with the exception that we bring Jesus in and we have the Lord's Supper. Um, they didn't do that. <laughs> they, would not have, they would not have appreciated the Lord's Supper in the synagogues. Um, And then we're going to move from that to the actual New Testament period. We're going to look at how Jesus worshipped. We're going to look at how Jesus Jesus, uh, uh, worshipped and alongside of how the apostles worshipped. And then we're going to look at Jesus' preaching. Uh, Preaching is going to be part of what we'll look at as we go through each age of the church. So we'll look at how Jesus preached. And then we'll look at how the apostles preached. We're going to look at some of their sermons very simply and briefly and make some observations about what preaching was like in this time. Um, the same thing goes for the early church. We're going to look at the era of the church fathers uh, after the apostles and up to maybe four or 500 AD. Um, that's the era that I, to be honest, found myself having the most fun reading. Um, because believe it or not, we have sermons left over from within 50 years of uh, the death of John, the apostle John. So we have very early sermons from the post-apostolic uh, age. We're able to look at what their preaching was like. What did they do? And what, guess what? I'm giving you a spoiler alert. What they did wasn't that different from what we do. Um, and I'll show you instead of just making the claim. Um, we're also going to look at some early church preachers. We're going to look at John Chrysostom. Uh, he is my favorite preacher of the early church. He's the guy you can go to and you can almost guarantee he's not going to say anything bizarro and weird. You can read his expositions of, of scripture and you're going to recognize what he does. Just it, you're going to feel at home uh, reading that. Um, so I want to introduce you to some early church preachers. Again, we're not going to be exhaustive. I'm just picking usually one or two people from each era, giving you a look, and then we're going to keep going. Um, we're going to look at worship in the Middle Ages. And I think for many of you or most of you, that's going to be the most unfamiliar territory um, I think even many Roman Catholics would, would not recognize much of what we're going to cover when we talk about the church during the Middle Ages and what worship was like in the church. Um, if you have no familiarity with, with Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, if you have very little familiarity with Eastern Orthodoxy, everything you learn there is going to be brand new. Um, you probably don't, could not guess what their sanctuaries look like, uh, what it's like to take the Lord's Supper in an Eastern Orthodox church. And uh, you won't guess what they have hanging on the walls in there compared to what, what we do. So there's a lot to, to unpack in that, in that era. The, the sixth lesson, we're going to look at the Reformation. We're going to look. Uh, one thing I want you to, to notice is that the Reformation is not just about a recovery of the gospel and preaching. It's a recovery of biblical worship. Because up until the Reformation, 
because people are largely illiterate and because the services were in languages people didn't understand, guess what spoke the most to people? The service, the overall service. And so there was, there was a message being conveyed even in the way that they conducted worship in the Middle Ages and the reformers saw it and it alarmed them greatly. And so we're going to talk about what alarmed the reformers. We're going to talk about the dramatic differences in the ways they worshiped during the Reformation. Just as an example, uh, there were churches in the Middle Ages where they didn't, or during the Reformation, where they didn't sing. They, just, they would just read aloud texts of scripture and they wouldn't sing because they were so committed to getting away from the Roman Catholic ways of worshiping. Um, and so they said, we're just going to read scripture out loud. We're not going to sing songs. So uh, they would read a psalm that says, sing a new song to the Lord. And they would, they would read it with vigor. Uh, <laughs> just really. <laughs> By the way, I will poke fun a little bit every now and then. But uh, if there's any Zwinglian churches out there where they're still not singing, maybe they need to hear that anyway. Um, (laughs) we're going to talk about the worship during the time of the Puritans. The Puritans really are the forefathers of the kind of worship that we conduct here at Evergreen. Uh, They are the ones that I look to as the ones that I draw a lot of my own inspiration from. And so I think it's relevant for us to look and say, how did they worship? How is it different than the reformers? How is it different than Luther? Um, I am, am sure you won't find that boring. It sounds maybe boring in the abstract when you hear me talk about it. I don't think you're going to find any of this boring. Um, Lesson eight, uh, we're going to talk about principles of worship. I actually struggle about whether to do this at the beginning or whether to do this at the end. And ultimately, I I settle on doing this at the end. So after we've looked at the history of worship in the church, after we've looked at the struggles that have taken place uh, in the church when it comes to the subject of worship, we're going to come up to our own era. And I'm going to talk about issues like the language we use when we talk about worship. What's an element of worship? What's a form of worship? What's a circumstance of worship? What do those things actually mean? How am I supposed to see my way through that? Um, We're going to talk about subjects like the regulative principle, which will take up a lot of our time because I'm going to really make an argument for it. If you don't know what it is, that means you've got to be here. Um, you know, if you've ever wondered why some churches practice, and I used Ash Wednesday as an example earlier. If you wonder why some churches practice Ash Wednesday and we don't, that's a reason to, to be here for that. Because hopefully uh, when we discuss the regulative principle and uh, by discussing elements and forms and circumstances of worship, hopefully that'll help a light bulb to go off for you. To see why it is that we're kind of restrained and why we, we're sort of simple in the sort of things that we adopt. Even though lots of things have been practiced in church history, we're pretty subdued here. right? We're pretty subdued. We keep things pretty simple here uh, at Evergreen. And so I think that lesson especially will really help illuminate some of the philosophy behind the simplicity of what we do. Um, you know, If you've ever wondered why do we have a call to worship? Every time we start the service with a call to worship, every time we end with a benediction, um, we have the offering during the, the order of service. Um, we read a confession of sin. We read a confession of faith. Is that biblical to read a, a non-biblical text, a confession of faith and corporately confess it? Is that biblical to do that? So we're going to try to hit on those things. And what it's going to do is it's going to light up what we do here so that now when you come to it in the service, you're going to feel like you understand it. You're going to feel like you understand why we do it. Um, so again, you know, we're thinking in the longer term here. I think a healthy church, church looks like a church where people understand why they're doing what they're doing. 
Um, and that means discussing in depth a subject like this. Um, lesson nine is the one I'm not excited about. It's the one that you guys will love and, you, and everyone else is just going to really enjoy twisting the screws on me. Um, because that one's going to be about hot button issues on the topic of worship. So we'll talk about things like <sighs> observance of the church calendar, um, psalm singing, um, musical styles in church, um, who should lead worship, um, children's church. Um, why don't we have a children's church? Um, Musical styles in church, right? Why not the drums and the rock guitars? Is there any, is this a question of judgment? Is this a biblical principle? Is, you know, would you ever consider this? All the stuff that you guys are just going to sit there and have so much fun watching me squirm. I'm going to try and talk about them um, because I think that you'll be asking those questions. And I think it would be weird to do a series where you get to the end and you're like, see, I dodged all the bullets. And you're like, ah, you just didn't talk about that thing you were uncomfortable with. So we'll do that. Um, and then we're also going to talk about family worship. We're going to discuss the, the, the fact that uh, there's another form of corporate worship that is not the same as the corporate worship of the church when we get together. But there's another body that each of us belongs to, right? If you have any family members, then you belong to a family. And God calls families to worship as well. He doesn't just call individuals to worship and he doesn't just call churches but he does call families to worship. And so uh, I want us to talk about the scriptural imperatives. I want to make the case to you that uh, fathers, that you should be uh, disciplining your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord by, by bringing them to family worship. Um, moms, if there's, if there's not a dad at home or maybe dad's traveling, moms, I want to encourage you that that's a responsibility that belongs to you as well. Um, husbands, even if your family uh, children are out of the house, God calls you to shepherd your wife and love your wife and to worship the Lord alongside of your wife. And so um, you've got all of these, these different people in different stations of life who actually need to hear about the call that God gives them to worship in whatever station they find themselves in. So this is going to be a very far-reaching series. Uh, it's on a topic that, that I love greatly. Um, I think that this is going to be very eye-opening to most of us. Um, I think that this is going to be... Um, I think it could be very unifying and shaping for our congregation. So that's why I'm really glad that more of you stayed. Sometimes you aren't all here for Sunday, Sunday school. I understand. But I'm glad that you came at least today. Hopefully you'll be hyped and want to come each week. But if not, we'll make sure to post the audio. Um, it's at this point that I actually plan on giving you a biblical theology of worship and taking you to the Garden of Eden and showing you Adam and Eve and the call that God gives them to worship. But we're out of time. So now that I've set the stage, at least. Yeah, Charlie. Can you run through your 10 lessons again? I summarize. <laughs> <laughs> just, just titles. <laughs> oh, okay. So lesson one is going to be what is worship. Lesson, lesson two is the synagogue. Lesson three, the New Testament. Uh, lesson four, early church. Lesson five, Middle Ages. Lesson six, Reformation. Lesson seven, Puritanism. Uh, lesson eight, principles of worship. Lesson nine, hot button issues in worship. And then lesson 10, family worship. So I think each of those will take us more than one week. We might finish the synagogue worship in one week. Um, that's probably the shortest lesson I have. But besides that, most of these are gonna take some time. So um, at this point, I'm just gonna close us in prayer. 
I, I hope you'll stick it out. I hope you're in for it. Um, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, we get to do this. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you created us to be worshipers, that as people made in your image, you created us to reach out to you, to know you, to reflect you, to glorify you. You made us for all of these things. And we do confess that we don't worship you in our lives as we should. We confess even that our corporate worship to you uh, is lacking God, that, that we are not perfect worshipers, that we don't worship you with our whole heart, that we don't love you as we should. And yet we thank you for Christ in whom even the meagerest presentation of praise because of Jesus becomes acceptable to you. And so we thank you that, that when we bring our, our love and our adoration of you, that you do not see filthy rags because of Jesus. Instead, you see, you see the love of a child, the flawed love of a child. I pray that as we come to worship each week, that we would do so with a better understanding of what we are doing. Uh, I pray that we would never even think that what we're doing is boring, that we would see the excitement and the amazement of being able to gather with your people all over the earth and in heaven to be able to raise your praise up and, and to say what a great God you are because it is what you made us for. We ask all of these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.